0: Good morning. My name is David Torres. If you're able, would you please remain standing for the reading of God's word? The scripture reading this morning is found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Well, good morning, everyone. At this time, you can take your seats. And our children's church is dismissed over here under the tent for anyone who wishes. Uh, I think Val's going old school. She's doing flannel graphs, so it's going to be super exciting. Give them a second to do that. We are in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, this is the final message on this uh, in this passage. Verse 11 will be our focus. Before we open the scripture, I just want to say that um, Lord willing... This will be the last time that we will meet outside, at least in 2020. I say 2020 because one thing I know about 2020 is nothing certain but God. So we'll see what happens. Um, But for those of you who are going to continue to be um, with us online, then we will be live streaming. Um, So don't be afraid. You can still view from from home. And our services are going to go back to where they were before, 9 o'clock. And 11 o'clock, so some of you need to show up at 11 and some at 9. Well, I'm excited about this particular message that closes off an amazing uh, section of text, and what excites me about this particular um, message is that it's really all about the Lord. You know, there are texts in Scripture that, that tell us what to do, like love your neighbor or redeem the time or humble yourself. They largely have to do with how we live, and we need those but there are other passages of scripture that just talk about God. And those are the ones to be perfectly honest that ignite my heart more than anything else. Just to hear about the greatness of, of, of who God is. It fills my soul. And that's what we want to do this morning is, is for you to hear not just with your head, but with your heart. I think most of us know and understand that it's not head knowledge that changes your life. Uh, it's knowledge in the heart when your affections are ignited and your will is set in motion that that's when your life really changes, is when it goes from head to heart. Case in point, some of you will know the name or remember the name Candice Leitner, also known as Candy Leitner. Prior to 1980, she had a cerebral understanding of the dangers of drunk driving. But in 1980, everything changed when her daughter, Carrie, was tragically struck by a drunk driver and killed. Cerebral knowledge became heart knowledge, painful heart knowledge, which launched her to found Mothers Against Drunk Driving, which brought the whole issue to national awareness. That's what happens when head knowledge turns to heart knowledge. Well, I believe fully and completely that the most compelling, the most life-changing, life-transforming knowledge you can possibly have is a heart knowledge of God himself. Now, granted, we can't have knowledge of God in the heart without first having it in the head, but it's the heart knowledge that ignites the affections and sets the will in motion that is the life-changing knowledge that the gospel gives to us. The prophet Moses, to some extent, knew about the God of the Hebrews as he grew up in the Egyptian royal family. And yet everything changed when he stood on holy ground and heard the voice of almighty God in the burning bush. It launched him from a shepherd to the prophet that would lead his people out of Egypt. Saul of Tarsus. He had an understanding about God and knowledge of God by way of the Mosaic law. Everything changed, however, When he met the risen Christ and experienced the glory of Christ on the road to Damascus so that he would go on to become the Apostle Paul, write much of the New Testament and change the world. It's heart knowledge. It's heart knowledge. And I believe that what the Spirit of God does when he brings you to life, that is he resurrects your inside, is he gives you that heart knowledge. That is he opens the affections to the reality of who God is and it begins to change you in an act of grace, so that it's not just head, it's, it's, it's heart. And we are to grow as believers and Christians through the entirety of our lives in that heart knowledge, as we hear about God, as we hear about what he's done, to not just allow it to remain here, but to pray and plead with God, Lord, please transform in here with the knowledge of who you are. As I said, this particular message is really all about God. Um, I want to explore with you in this verse, verse 11, the greatness of who God is. That is the glory of his, of his love in hopes that, you know, if the spirit of God is in your heart, that you're going to be fed and you're going to be changed. You're going to be encouraged. You're going to be transformed. As I said, it's an exploration. I'm really going to make one point and I'm not just going to give it to you up front. Rather, I want to explore and get there together. So we've been looking at these verses, which talk about the humiliation of the Son of God. Though he existed in the form of God, right? He was God. He emptied himself, humbled himself, took upon the form of a man, and was obedient to the Father to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we have this massive descent from divinity to a slave crucified on a cross. And then We looked at the change as a result of this great, willing humiliation on the part of the Son of God. It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's the entire cosmos, heaven, earth, and the realm of the dead. And every tongue, this is verse 11, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That last phrase, to the glory of God the Father, is going to be the primary focus. Well, he looked at verse 10, where submission to the lordship of Christ is expressed physically by way of kneeling. Verse 11, we see the submission to Christ verbally by way of confess- confession, that is, the realm of the entire cosmos, heaven, earth, and the realm of the dead and demonic. We'll have to admit some joyfully and some begrudgingly, that Jesus is in fact Yahweh. He is Lord. And all of that to the glory of God the Father. Now, one of the interesting things that comes out in this passage, and mind you, Paul writes this because he wants us to live differently, right? He says, have this mind in yourselves, which is also in Christ. He wants us to approach life in a particular way. So he doesn't want us to do But the way of getting us to do is by pointing us to God himself, by Jesus, right? The Son of God who comes down, dies on a cross, and then is exalted to the highest place to the glory of the Father. Now, what's interesting is there's this interplay between God the Son and God the Father that brings out something marvelous about, like, the heart of God, like, who he is that, like I said, feeds faith and changes our lives. And I want to explore what that is. What is this marvelous thing, this interplay between the son and the father in this passage? Now, before I get there, let me just tell you a little bit of my journey of understanding the Lord. There's, there's this struggle that I have had that needed to be resolved. And the struggle is the belief that God pursues his own glory above all else. Now, just to put your mind at ease, I still believe that. Like, that we believe that the chief end of man is to what? Glorify God, I can't hear you, but I'm, you got a mask on, probably can't hear you. Is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We're told that whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. And the, theologians would go on and say, you know what, that's the chief end of God, too. Like the chief end of God is to glorify God and enjoy himself forever. And we believe that. It's God's highest aim. His highest aim is not you, it's him. And I firmly and completely believe that. The difficulty that I've had with that is if we're not careful in our mental construction or understanding of it, we can easily come to the arrival of the the conclusion that God is selfishly ambitious. Ambitious. Selfishly ambitious. It sounds like that. It can sound like that. Which Paul tells us we're not to do in Philippians 2. We're, we're to seek the needs of or the interests of others above our own. That's that's Philippians 2. We're not to seek vainglory or conceit. And yet here, in this statement that God pursues above all else his glory, it sounds like he's driven by selfish ambition. It's as if God is saying to us in Philippians 2, do as I do, not as I say, or just do as I say, not as I do. How do you resolve that? Now, in one sense, you can say, well, some things simply don't apply to God that apply to us. Like, he's the creator, we're the creation. He's divine, we're human. He's to be worshipped, we're not. And that's true. However, And this is where the resolution comes. If you look at the pursuit, God's pursuit of his glory and everything he does within the context of the Trinity, then the picture changes entirely. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, ah, great, we're going to go to this cold Trinitarian theology thing. Listen, the idea that God exists as one in three Father, Son, and Spirit is at the very heart of the Christian faith, the very heart of the gospel. The whole gospel collapses if you don't have Father, Son, and Spirit. In order for Jesus to take the punishment for our sin, he had to take judgment from somebody. More than just one. There had to be a judge and a judged. Like I said, the whole thing breaks apart if we don't believe that God exists as one in three he planted that seed in Genesis chapter 1 when he said, let us make man in our own image. That is us, plural, our image, plural. Planting the seed that would eventually blossom fully into the Father, Son, Spirit. One God and three persons. Now what that means for us is God is essentially communal. That God is essentially relational. By essential, I mean he's eternally that. It's part of his being, which means he is eternally or essentially love. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said not too long ago in his profoundly simple little book, Mere Christianity. He said, all sorts of people are fond of repeating the Christian statement that God is love, but They seem not to notice that the words God is love have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another person. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. That's part of the beauty of of the God of Christianity, he can be love and is love eternally for all times, even before creation. Why? Because he exists in plurality. That, of course, is a simple point. God is love. And really, if you think about it logically, the Christian conception of God is the only one who can actually hold that God is eternally loving. Let us make man in our own image. The question then, it becomes, okay... God pursues his own glory, but he does so as a trinity. How does that love work? And here, what I want to say, and this is the point, is God himself is selfless and self-giving towards the other members of the trinity. Just think back Through the passage, God, the son, gives up everything. Empties himself, humbles himself, goes to a cross and dies in obedience to the father. So the son literally gives up everything. He's self-giving. He's selfless. Why? Well, one answer would be to save us from our sins, but that's not the ultimate answer. The ultimate answer is verse 11 to the glory of God, his father. He gives up everything to show the world the power of his love, the extent of his grace. He goes to the cross out of love to glorify his father. You see, that? that's, not, that's not selfish ambition. He empties and humbles so that his father can be glorified. That's, that's not selfish ambition. That is self-giving. He is selfless in the pursuit of his father's glory. Well, what about the father then, we might ask? What does the father do? Well, verse 9, he exalts him, not just exalts him, to the highest place. And then he shares his sacred name with him. And then he makes him the the object of worship of everyone, heaven, earth, and under the earth, and makes him the object of, of confession, that everyone confesses that he is Lord to the glory of the father. That is, the father gives the son everything. You see? Like within God himself, there is a self-giving selflessness for the sake of the others. So I think you could say this. This would be accurate. To say that the chief end of the Father is to glorify the Son. The chief end of the Spirit is to glorify the Son. And the chief end of the Spirit and the Son is to glorify who? The Father. That there is this self-giving selflessness within God himself that spills out towards us. Robert Lethem puts it this way. Just listen. The persons of the Trinity live in an indivisible union of love, seeking the glory of the other. When God seeks his glory, he is not pursuing self-interest like a celestial bully. It is not that he is more powerful than we and so his pursuit of his own glory wins out come what may his glory is a divine trinitarian glory of self-giving love this whole passage of philippians 2 shows us this son giving up everything for the glory of the father and the father giving everything to the son that's 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 who the lord is where do we fit into that Well, first, we have to make a distinction between God's love for God, that is the Father and the Son and the Spirit, versus his love for us. The love that the Son has for the Father, to glorify the Father, is is a love of intrinsic worthiness. You know, the Father looks at the Son and says, this is perfection. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I couldn't see or experience anything more wonderful, beautiful, full of splendor than my son. That's the father. And the son looks at the father and says, there is no one like you among the gods, O Lord. Your your love extends to the heavens and your faithfulness to the skies. Splendor and majesty are before you. Their love for each other is one driven by intrinsic worth. God's love for us is pure and exclusive grace. Grace to deserve that kind of love. And yet, here's the thing. It's like, because God in his very nature is a self-giving God, he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That is, he gave up what was priceless for the sake of you and I, which was an act of pure, unadulterated grace for anyone who would receive it. And we become like this gift exchange between father and son. Father creates us, a people in the image of Jesus, a people who will worship him for all time. That's a gift. And Jesus comes and redeems what's broken and recreates us. And we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that he then offers us back to the Father. It's like we are this exchange of love gift between fathers. And we're caught up in this Trinitarian love affair. And we're invited to be family with him. And because of what Jesus has done, this is pretty remarkable to think that our Father can look over us because of the righteousness of Jesus and the death of Jesus and say, these are my beloved sons and daughters in whom I am well pleased, not because of us, but because of Him. And that's the heart of God, the self giving nature of God's love for Himself, Father, Son, Spirit, that spills out to us and makes us part of His family. Now, that truth, church of God, that makes me want to sing. It makes me want to get on my knees and give thanks. It makes me want to worship. And it makes me want to be like Him, self giving selfless. And if there's something we need today, it's to have living representations of God, living representations of Jesus that live lives that are self-giving, not self-ish. And yet at the same time, we live in a culture that drips with a seductive honey of selfishness. Everything appeals to you, appeals to me, and it's so easy just to rise up in a sense of selfishness and, and live for ourselves. You ever notice when you look at a family photograph, the first face you look at, and you're in the picture, of course? It's yours. And you're either impressed or bothered by what you see. Might be impressed to think, wow, Dan, you look pretty good at 53, or... Man, you're looking old. Why is it we look at our own faces the first? Well, that's the residual vanity and selfishness that still clings to our souls. (laughs) Or you post something on Instagram and you think, man, this is amazing. I'm going to get 400 heart likes. And you don't, you get 10. And then you look at your friend's Instagram and there's like... 400 and you're like irritated. It's like that was a stupid post. Mine was brilliant. Well, you went wrong when you thought your post was brilliant to begin with, but where does that irritation come from? It, 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 it comes from vanity within. It's not just true of individuals. It's true of collective groups too, whether on the basis of ethnicity or economics. The pursuit of exalting one group over and against and at the expense of another group is nothing but collective selfishness. That's not how Christianity works. It's like, Lord, how can I live my life? How can we, as a collective unity, as a church, live our lives in the community in a way that is self-giving, representing and reflecting who God is? That's, that's the crying need. And, and you know, I've, my prayer has been both for me and for us as a church, whether you're here or you're online, is that God would just reawaken us to the greatness of who he is because the one thing that compels the most change, the most transformation that can turn a selfish sinner into a self-giving saint is an encounter with God himself, with his grace, with his love, with the cross of Jesus Christ and the hope of resurrection I hope that is our goal, is, Lord, I want to know you not just with my head, I want to know you with my heart. I want to know you as the self-giving, selfless God that you are, so that you might be, in the end, glorified. We have an opportunity to participate this morning in the climactic event in which God showed himself to be self-giving, and that is the crucifixion of Jesus. We take communion on the fourth Sunday of the month, and today just happens to be the fourth Sunday of the month. That is if there are no fires in churches and church canceled. So we've, we're doing it a little bit different. Um, this table, perhaps it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway, is for those who are followers of Jesus. If you're visiting and you're a follower of Jesus, you're welcome to join. But if not, we just ask you kindly to not partake because it's, it's a family thing. Um, But we have two tables up here, and if you could respect each other's distance, which I can tell you guys don't really respect that too much, but um, if you could just come forward. um, Sarah's gonna, gonna play some songs, and just come, and I want you to reflect on the love of God for you, the bigness of God for you and your family and for us, and you can take the elements back to your chair. You can pray with your family and just take them together with the spirit of humility and a spirit of confession and a spirit of gratitude. So as soon as I pray, um, feel free to free form come up and grab the elements and take them back. Father, we're thankful for who you are for us. We're thankful for the simple fact that um, Jesus gave us this supper to remember what's vital and what's central. That is his death and resurrection. Lord, we take the body representing our bread representing his body, and we want to remember what he did physically for us in giving His life and the blood. As we take the juice, Lord, I pray that we would be reminded of his blood poured out all the way dead, even death on a cross. Lord, I pray that you open the eyes of our hearts to see you for who you really are, that we would see you as bigger than we did yesterday or the day before that. We thank you for this gift. I pray that you bless us as we take it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.